Imagine a house equipped with state-of-the-art security. Picture reinforced gates, entry sensors, and perimeter patrols, all ready to identify trespassers and mobilize resources to remove them accordingly. Now, imagine that someone has disabled the alarms for this security system, thereby lowering our defenses and leaving us vulnerable to intruders. That someone is HIV, and those intruders are opportunistic infections or OIs. These infections can arise from a wide range of bacterial, viral, fungal, and parasitic pathogens, all of which can exploit the opportunity inherent to HIV-mediated immunosuppression. As a result, OIs can be more common and or more devastating in patients with HIV, although the incidence of most OIs has drastically decreased with the advent of antiretroviral therapy. Their morbidity and mortality remain high in uncontrolled HIV, particularly in the setting of advanced immunosuppression, which is most often seen in those with new and or delayed HIV diagnosis and suboptimal virologic control. Today, our patient has HIV, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled... A window of opportunity, preventing and treating HIV opportunistic infections. Time for our minute physiology. The human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV, is a retrovirus that binds to receptors on the surface of a host CD4 cell. Subsequent fusion of the HIV envelope with the CD4 cell's membrane allows the viral genome to enter the host cytoplasm. Once inside, HIV undergoes reverse transcription to convert its RNA to DNA, the latter of which integrates itself into the CD4 cell's DNA. By co-opting the host's cellular machinery to replicate, HIV propagates its genetic material and assembles viral protein chains. This raw material is cleaved to form new mature HIV virus, which then buds off the host cell now ready to infect and attack other CD4 cells. Over time, dissemination of HIV leads to depletion of CD4 cells. Given the role that CD4 cells play in mediating cellular immune responses, the risk of an OI is higher in individuals with HIV, especially those who have not yet achieved viral suppression with antiretroviral therapy. Alright, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. Let's say our patient is presenting with a fever in the context of known HIV. As with any consult, start by assessing their vital signs and ABCs. If they're unstable with concern for airway compromise, respiratory failure, or shock, ask your senior ICU colleagues for help early. If they're stable, Start with a thorough review of their chart and their HIV disease trajectory. Given that OIs are generally associated with progressive immunodeficiencies, keep your patient's most recent CD4 count and viral load in mind to contextualize their symptoms and signs and to refine your differential diagnosis. Remember that an individual with HIV can present to hospital for reasons unrelated to their HIV. So keep both HIV-related and HIV-unrelated diagnoses in mind. For individuals who are well-controlled on antiretroviral therapy, 
with suppressed viral loads, OIs are less likely to occur, but not impossible. For individuals who are not virologically suppressed on antiretroviral therapy, especially those with a low CD4 count, OIs should be higher up on your differential. There's a number of OIs, but for the sake of time, we'll focus today on a select few. Notable OIs that we'll cover in other podcasts include cryptococcal meningitis and tuberculosis. Additionally, there are opportunistic malignancies, such as Kaposi's sarcoma and certain types of lymphoma, for discussion another time. In this episode specifically, we'll review five OIs recommended for primary prophylaxis by the adult and adolescent opportunistic infection guidelines, starting with their presentation and ending with their prevention as well as management. If your patient is presenting with respiratory symptoms and their CD4 count is below 200 cells per microliter, consider pneumocystis-gyrovesi pneumonia, also referred to as PJP or PCP. This is a fungal infection characterized by days to weeks of non-productive cough and progressive dyspnea, particularly with exertion. While oxygen desaturation with exercise may be suggestive, keep in mind that it is not specific for PCP. In fact, your patient's pulmonary exam may be normal, as is the case in 50% of PCP infections. Depending on their extent of respiratory distress, however, you may appreciate tachycardia and tachypnea on vitals, as well as crackles and rails on auscultation. As it can be a common co-infection, check also for oral thrush. There is no signal sign or symptom pathognomonic for PCP, so maintain a high index of suspicion for it, especially if the presentation is concerning for an indolent respiratory illness. If their CD4 count is below 150 cells per microliter, think about histoplasmosis from Histoplasma capsulatum, particularly if your patient has lived in or traveled to endemic regions. Keep in mind, however, that this fungus is becoming increasingly prevalent in Canada. It grows in soil enriched with nitrogen, so probe for exposure to caves, chicken coops, and bird or bat droppings, as well as for travel to central and eastern United States or to South America. Approximately 50% of histoplasmosis cases present as a respiratory infection, but a small percentage, particularly with advanced HIV, feature central nervous system, cutaneous, gastrointestinal, and or disseminated disease. So, in addition to dyspnea, cough, and pleuritic chest pain, assess your patient from head to toe, inquiring about fever, fatigue, night sweats, and weight loss, headaches and seizures, new skin or mucous membrane lesions, as well as abdominal pain and diarrhea. On exam, look for hepatosplenomegaly and lymphadenopathy, and screen for signs of severe disseminated disease, such as acute respiratory distress, altered mental status, and or sepsis. If your patient is presenting with neurologic changes and their CD4 count is below 100 cells per microliter, consider toxoplasma encephalitis. Primary infection by the toxoplasma gondii parasite can occur after ingestion of undercooked contaminated meat and shellfish or contact with contaminated cat feces. Evaluate for the neuropsychiatric manifestations of toxoplasmosis, such as new headache, seizures, weakness, and confusion. 
On exam, assess for cranial nerve palsies, focal neurologic deficits, ataxia, and altered mental status. Although toxoplasmosis primarily presents as encephalitis in patients with HIV, extracerebral disease is also possible, usually with respiratory concerns and or ocular complaints. Other sites are rarely involved, but disseminated disease can lead to septic shock. So keep alert for harbingers of clinical decompensation, again, weighing your patient's vitals and ABCs. If their CD4 count is below 100 cells per microliters and your patient endorses new skin lesions, think about telomycosis, formerly known as penicillosis. This infection is caused by Telomyces marnifi, a fungus endemic to tropical and subtropical Asia. Taking this into account, confirm your patient's place of birth and recent travel. Presentation can vary widely, but infection frequently starts with vague malaise and constitutional symptoms, such as fever and weight loss. Multi-organ involvement with advanced HIV is possible, so make sure to screen for respiratory and gastrointestinal symptoms as well. Abdominal distension and pain may be a consequence of hepatosplenomegaly, which is present on physical exam in 70% of cases. Approximately 40-70% to of cases feature skin lesions, so look out for umbilicated papules with necrotic centers on the face, trunk, and extremities. These are often the best clues to talarmycosis. If your patient's CD4 count is below 50, Consider Mycobacterium avium complex, or MAC disease. MAC encompasses a group of non-tuberculosis mycobacteria that are ubiquitous in the environment. If your patient is not yet on antiretroviral therapy, they may experience nonspecific symptoms. So make sure that you assess your patient from head to toe, inquiring about malaise, fatigue, fever, abdominal pain, diarrhea, and weight loss. If your patient is on antiretroviral therapy, they may report localized manifestations streaming from pneumonia, pericarditis, skin and soft tissue infection, osteomyelitis, and or CNS disease. Physical exam findings may range from signs associated with a localized syndrome to hepatomegaly, splenomegaly, and lymphadenopathy. Given the variable clinical presentation of MAC disease, a thorough workup is key to confirming the diagnosis. As you build up your differential around your patient's history and physical, think about the investigations that would be helpful to confirm your suspected diagnosis. Again, ensure that your workup includes a recent CD4 count and viral load. If your patient's HIV is well controlled on antiretroviral therapy, it may not be helpful to order them at admission. Since the CD4 count can be suppressed transiently in the setting of acute illness, and a viral load can take several days to come back. If your patient's HIV is not well controlled, however, consider repeating these measures in the hospital. A complete blood count and biochemical panel should also be sent to identify laboratory abnormalities associated with certain OIs and to screen for evidence of end-organ damage. Imaging and microbiologic tests such as blood cultures, urine cultures, and cerebral spinal fluid culture, where clinically appropriate, should be ordered based on your patient's symptoms and signs. The rest of your investigation should be tailored to detect suggestive and definitive findings for the OI of concern.
If you're concerned about pneumocystis pneumonia, start with a chest x-ray and the more sensitive CT chest. Classic features on either include diffuse ground glass opacities and bilateral perihilar infiltrates with a bat wing or butterfly-shaped appearance. In addition to imaging, send off a lactate dehydrogenase, as an elevated LDH is a sensitive, albeit nonspecific, finding with PCP in people with HIV. Another useful investigation is the arterial blood gas, with severe disease characterized by a partial pressure of oxygen less than 70 millimeters of mercury, and an alveolar arterial gradient greater than or equal to 35. Treatment should be promptly initiated if suspicion for PCP is high, but definitive diagnosis requires demonstration of pneumocystis gervesi, usually with respiratory secretions via induced, not spontaneously exporiated, sputum, or bronchoalveolar lavage fluid. Given the high yield with BAL, tissue diagnosis with a transbronchial or open lung biopsy is rarely required. If you're concerned about histoplasmosis, send off blood or urine samples for antigen detection. These methods may assist with the diagnosis of acute disseminated disease. If your patient's presentation is suspicious for pulmonary histoplasmosis or histoplasma meningitis, bronchoalveolar lavage fluid or cerebral spinal fluid, respectively, can be analyzed as well. Fungal staining of blood and tissue is also possible but insensitive. Histoplasma capsulatum itself can be cultured from blood, respiratory secretions, cerebral spinal fluid, bone marrow, or other sites of involvement, but several weeks are required for the organism to grow. Despite the lengthy incubation period, culture remains the gold standard for definitive diagnosis of histoplasmosis. If you're concerned about toxoplasma encephalitis, check for the presence of anti-toxoplasma Gandhi antibodies, since the IgG antibody is almost uniformly positive during primary infection. A lumbar puncture can be performed as well, mainly to exclude other diagnoses. Analysis of CSF should include cytology, bacterial culture, mycobacterial culture, fungal culture, cryptococcal antigen, as well as viral PCRs for herpes virus, John Cunningham JC virus, and other viruses based on clinical suspicion. Toxoplasma Gondii PCR can also be requested, but may not be required. The diagnosis of toxoplasma encephalitis is often made presumptively based on 1. having a CD4 count less than 100. 2. being toxoplasma IgG positive, 3. not taking toxoplasma prophylaxis, and 4. having compatible neuroimaging. Between CT and MRI, the latter is more sensitive, but both can pick up ring-enhancing lesions. Clinical and radiographic improvement in response to toxoplasmosis treatment also supports the presumptive diagnosis with stereotactic CT-guided brain biopsy reserved for patients who fail to respond to specific therapy or for life-threatening presentations that require urgent diagnostic certainty. If you're concerned about telomycosis, start with fungal staining or skin lesion scrappings, lymph node or bone marrow aspirates, or tissue secretions. This can allow for presumptive diagnosis several days before definitive diagnosis can be established from histopathologic demonstration of Tellermyces marnifi on biopsies, specimens, or fungal cultures. If you're concerned about MAC disease, 
Look for the associated abnormalities on blood work and imaging while waiting for isolation of the organism from mycobacterial blood cultures and or biopsy cultures. Some common findings include a low hemoglobin, an elevated ALP, and an increasing LDH, as well as lymphadenopathy and hepatosplenomegaly on CT abdomen pelvis. These results will be available before mycobacterial growth is detected on blood cultures, usually by day 14. Remember that mycobacterial blood cultures need to be sent in special tubes, distinct from the tubes used for regular blood cultures, so check with the lab to ensure proper specimen collection. Now that we've reviewed our workup, let's discuss how to prevent and treat the first episode of an opportunistic infection. Of course, decisions for either should involve your patient's HIV specialist and your infectious disease colleagues. For pneumocystis pneumonia prevention, consider initiating prophylaxis, ideally with daily single-strength or double-strength tablet triumethoprim sulfamethoxazole. If your patient's CD4 count is below 200, if their CD4 percentage is below 14%, or if their CD4 count falls between 200 to 250, but antiretroviral therapy is delayed or regular CD4 monitoring is not possible. The preferred regimen for treatment of pneumocystis infection also consists of triomethoprim sulfamethoxazole, given orally for mild, moderate disease and intravenously for severe disease. For moderate to severe disease, adjunctive corticosteroids should be started in parallel with antimicrobial therapy, and both should be continued for a 21-day course. For histoplasmosis prevention, consider initiating prophylaxis with oral itraconazole. If your patient's CD4 count is below 150 and they are at heightened risk, either from occupational exposure or residence in an endemic region, treatment of less severe disseminated disease also relies on oral itraconazole for a total duration of at least 12 months. Treatment of moderate to severe disseminated histoplasmosis or of histoplasmosis meningitis, however, requires at least two weeks of induction therapy with intravenous liposomal amphotericin B, followed by maintenance therapy with oral itraconazole for a total duration of at least 12 months. For severe disseminated histoplasmosis or CNS involvement, after one year of treatment, consider continuing itraconazole as part of long-term suppressive therapy. For toxoplasmosis prevention, consider initiating prophylaxis, ideally with daily double-strength triomethoprim sulfamethoxazole. If your patient's CD4 count is less than 100 and their toxoplasma IgG positive, the preferred regimen for treatment is a minimum six-week course of weight-based triomethoprim sulfamethoxazole. Adjunctive corticosteroids are generally not required but may be indicated if there is concern for mass effect or cerebral edema from a focal lesion. Routine seizure prophylaxis is not recommended, but anticonvulsants may be added if there is a known history of seizures. Keep in mind that the majority of patients with HIV and toxoplasma encephalitis, in fact, more than 70% of them, demonstrate clinical and radiographic improvement within 14 days of initiating treatment. It follows then that another diagnosis and a brain biopsy should be considered if your patient has not responded to therapy within two weeks, particularly if the diagnosis was made presumptively, as is often the case. 
For talar mycosis prevention, consider initiating prophylaxis with oral itraconazole if your patient's CD4 count is below 100, and they cannot be on antiretroviral therapy while residing in a highly endemic region within northern Thailand, southern China, or northern or southern Vietnam. If your patient is not from any of these countries, but they are planning to explore the aforementioned areas without antiretroviral therapy on board, start them on primary prophylaxis with itraconazole before their travel. Upon diagnosis, the preferred regimen for treatment entails two weeks of induction therapy with intravenous liposomal amphotericin B, followed by 10 weeks of consolidation therapy with itraconazole. Then, more than six months of maintenance therapy with itraconazole until the CD4 count rises above 100. For disseminated MAC prevention, consider initiating prophylaxis with a macrolide, such as azithromycin or clarithromycin, if disseminated disease has been ruled out and your patient's CD4 count is below 50, with no plans to start antiretroviral therapy imminently. If they are imminently starting antiretroviral therapy, then primary MAC prophylaxis is not required. If they indeed have active disseminated disease, they should then promptly start on antiretroviral therapy and MAC treatment. The latter consists of a minimum 12-month course of a macrolide in combination with ethambutol and sometimes a third agent to prevent or delay the emergence of drug resistance with macrolide monotherapy. If there is no clinical response within four to eight weeks, Send for repeat mycobacterial blood cultures and consider the possibility of an immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome, or IRIS. This is a well-known complication following initiation of antiretroviral therapy in the setting of disseminated MAC. While continuing your patient's antiretrovirals, start management of IRIS with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, plus or minus systemic corticosteroids if symptoms progress. Now, it's time for our Medicine Minute. The IDEAL study was a 2019 open-label trial that compared immediate versus deferred initiation of antiretroviral therapy, or ART, in HIV-1 infected patients presenting with either pneumocystis pneumonia or toxoplasma encephalitis. A total of 61 patients, 50 with PCP and 11 with toxoplasma encephalitis, were enrolled and followed for 24 weeks after being randomized to start ART within 7 days of OI treatment initiation or after OI treatment completion. No significant differences were found between the immediate and deferred arms in all examined endpoints, including clinical worsening and OI-associated complications. Ultimately, this study demonstrated that early initiation of ART is safe with no negative impact on OI progression, iris development, immunological and virological outcome, and overall quality of life. This finding is congruent with the results of the A5164 study, a 2009 randomized strategy trial that previously explored the question of early versus deferred ART with a larger sample size of 282 patients. Of note, this paper reported a significant difference in mortality between the two arms, with fewer cases of AIDS progression and death in patients who initiated ART within 14 days of OI treatment, rather than after OI treatment. 
Although the incidence of iris was low in the A5164 study, the authors note that its risk is likely to vary by opportunistic infection. In other words, iris may be less common with the OIs represented in the trial, namely PCP, but there are key settings, such as cryptococcal meningitis and tuberculosis, in which the potential for severe iris should delay ART. Accordingly, when caring for a patient with HIV-associated OI, ensure that initiation of ART, regardless of whether it is early or deferred, occurs in tandem with careful monitoring for iris. In summary, opportunistic infections are rare among immunocompetent individuals, but more common and more severe in immunocompromised individuals, such as those with uncontrolled HIV. Knowing a patient's HIV disease trajectory and use of antiretroviral therapy is integral to understanding their specific OI risk. Connect with their HIV specialist and involve your infectious disease colleagues early as you plan thorough workup and prompt treatment. Key points on history should include constitutional symptoms and focal infectious symptoms. Given that certain pathogens are endemic to certain regions, places of birth, residence, travel, and exposures should be confirmed. The physical exam should screen for lymphadenopathy and hepatosplenomegaly, as well as any abnormal findings from head to toe. An investigation should encompass all blood work, imaging, and microbiology relevant to the presentation. Finally, your approach should be informed by your patient's CD4 count, and appropriate prevention or treatments should be initiated based on the adult and adolescent opportunistic infection guidelines. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled, A Window of Opportunity, Preventing and Treating HIV Opportunistic Infections. This episode was written by Dr. Valerie Kim, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Nisha and Danny, infectious disease specialist, and Dr. Isaac Bogoch, infectious disease specialist and general internal medicine physician. The Intranetwork series was created and executively produced by Allison Lai, alongside executive producers Zara Morali and Leah Kuranopoulos. This podcast was recorded by Zara Morali and produced by Kira Liblick. Theme song by Laxman's Vantha Mohan. If you liked this podcast, please like and subscribe at wherever you get your podcasts. Please also see a very helpful summary infographic at our website, theintranetwork.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon.